You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Happy holidays, Locked On NBA, Thursday edition. David Locke along with Washington Post, Ben Golliver. And uh, we'll review the Christmas Day, kind of league status, look at all those things. Uh, it was an interesting Christmas Day, Ben. I know you were at Lakers Clippers. What is it felt to me like everyone plays a little harder Christmas that maybe in a league where rest and load management and other topics have existed all year that these were these were really good representations of where everybody is and who they are. Is that is that how you left Christmas Day a little bit? Well, I would say for sure in the case of the Lakers and the Clippers, both those teams really wanted that game. I mean, you look at LeBron, I think he, you know, he sat a game on Sunday, so he had like four days of rest for it. Uh, the Clippers, I mean, you could just tell by how Patrick Beverly just stomps around the court constantly, how badly they want that win. I mean, even Montrez Harrell after the game kind of celebrating, uh, you know, with some profane shouting at the tunnel. I mean, it was a, a very boisterous and excited uh, post-game situation from the Clippers, and and everyone loves to say it's not a rivalry. They always try to downplay it. But I think these two teams are really circling each other. We got a moment from, of truth from Paul George who said, look, I think the Western Conference is you know, going to come down to Clippers, Lakers in the conference finals. So uh, at least one person is on record saying he's looking ahead to, to what that matchup could mean. But when you look at a lot of these other games, I see statement victories in a lot of different cities. For sure, Philadelphia, no question about it. You know, they've been knocked for their inconsistency basically all season long, they come out and just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, smack the Bucks in a really impressive victory. Uh, you know, same deal for Golden State. I think that they uh, have been kind of, you know, written off, cast aside. Uh, and for them to rise up and, and spring an upset on Christmas, I think, was a little bit of a statement game. And then same deal with Boston. I mean, they took advantage of a, an undermanned, uh, you know, Toronto team in that opening game. But they came out and uh, you know, showed sort of a little bit of everything that's gone well for them this year, whether it's from, you know, Kemba Walker to Jalen Brown and, and right on down the list. So uh, I do think we got, uh, you know, kind of representative performances from a bunch of the teams who, uh, you know, want to be contenders here as they go forward. All right, we'll run through them, but let's start with the marquee game. Lakers, Clippers. I've got some thoughts that I think are a little different than, than others, but I want yours first. What, what was your overall takeaway on this game? Well, I start with Kawhi and LeBron always. And for the second time this season, Kawhi badly outplayed LeBron, you know, period. I mean, he just won that matchup. He did what he wanted to do more easily in crunch time uh, than LeBron did. Uh, after the game, LeBron mentioned that he was dealing with a groin injury. He got kind of nailed in the jewels by Patrick Beverly early in that game. He basically said it set him back. Uh, it's something he's been dealing with here over the last week. He just was not in attack mode, not really aggressive down the stretch of that game, settled for a lot of jumpers. Um, and was trying to facilitate, uh, you know, maybe more than uh, you would like in that situation. And it led to a bunch of empty possessions. I think the Lakers went, you know, more than two minutes uh, of crunch time without getting a score. And they were just kind of jacking up a lot of three-pointers when they needed to, you know, maybe find, you know, better shots or, or work a little bit harder for shots. So to me, the superstar battle is now 2-0 in favor of Kawhi Leonard. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think ultimately – uh, the question becomes for LeBron, like if, if you're 0-2 against Kawhi and the Bucks and Giannis kind of ran you off the court 0-1 against them, uh, are the Lakers a team that's very good but not quite elite? Like are they in the second-tier category uh, maybe more than we expected? Uh, I think that's a fair question to ask. 
after seeing some of these head-to-head matchups. All right, well, we'll get back to that because I thought there. I think there's a lot there, particularly you know their win streak is against all below 500 teams, which you deserve credit for. That's all you can do, but it does lead to the next question. Let's go to the Clippers in, in that one. How th- they have played? What now? I think 11 and four when everybody's on on the floor together. Uh, they seem to be able to play the Kawhi Leonard, Paul George combination and have both of them feel relevant and Lou Williams in there on each possession. It, it, you, I feel like you feel them. I actually felt the opposite. I felt like you either felt LeBron or you felt Anthony Davis on a possession, but you rarely felt both of them. What do you think the Clippers are doing so well that you're, that they have the ability to make their whole powerhouse be felt by the opponent? Well, yeah, first thing I'd say is I'm not sure how much we felt LeBron in that game. I think that was a big problem, too. And I think, you know, even Davis was sort of feeling the trickle-down effect of that where, you know, late in game they almost kind of panic and they start going to him in isolation, and now he's just working one-on-one and and settling for mid-range jumpers. They just didn't have their flow in the crunch time like they needed it uh, from the Lakers' standpoint. But for the Clippers, uh, I think, uh, you know, part of it is just that Kawhi, doesn't need to suck up all the oxygen in the room every single game. And he definitely flips the switch, right? And I think that there's a respect factor from everybody else in that locker room and from the coaching staff that, like, it's Kawhi's team. And so, you know, when it comes to winning time late in games, a lot of times he'll have the ball in his hands. He drew a couple fouls on Danny Green in key moments late to get to the free throw line. Uh, But he doesn't commandeer the offense. He doesn't, uh, you know, take things over. And he's unselfish. He does pass the ball uh, maybe more than he's gotten credit for in previous years. I actually thought late in that game, Paul George's shot selection was a little bit forced. I thought he was trying to do just a little bit too much. And I think uh, you know, he made a comment after the game that basically Kawhi was the reason why they won that game. He saved them. And I think that's true. I think Kawhi did save Paul George a little bit in just providing a steady influence uh, on some offensive possessions where maybe they were settling for shots as a team that, that weren't quite as good as they needed to be. But um, I think a lot of it comes down to the nature of Kawhi's offensive game, too. If he wants to get you into one of those Michael Jordan turnarounds or one of those, uh, you know, drive into the middle of the paint, uh, raise up and just kind of elevate a little bit longer than you can elevate, hang in the air uh, and shoot a little 10 footer. He can basically get that shot at any time against any player, uh, especially on the uh, the Lakers, who don't really have a big premier wing defender, um, you know, equipped to handle him. And so I think that's a big part of it, too. There's a confidence factor in him as an offensive threat. Uh, and I think, you know, contrast that with the Lakers. I mean, LeBron was really struggling to get to his spots yesterday. He wasn't able to kind of live in the paint, do a lot of stuff above the rim, you know, break down a defense off the dribble and, and get the ball moving. He was really orchestrating from the outside in. I thought Danny Green's struggle as a defender was a big part of the story in this game. Well, they're asking an awful lot of them too, right? I mean, I think that's that's one thing that I come back to when I look at this Lakers versus Clippers matchup. Yes, it's difficult for the Clippers to have a good answer for Anthony Davis's length for his vertical threat. Uh, I mean, that's just a tough cover for them. They don't have someone who's kind of perfectly equipped to do that. But when you flip it around, the Lakers really don't have a good answer defensively for either Paul George or Kawhi Leonard. Now, Danny Green's a decent answer, right? And LeBron James, you could use him at, at certain points. But over the course of a seven-game series, I think those matchups actually favor the Clippers. The superstar-level matchups uh, favor the Clippers, uh, in part because I think both Kawhi Leonard and Paul George can do a really good job on LeBron James, uh, you know, when needed. And you know, I don't want to say that we saw LeBron's age showing through necessarily yesterday. Uh, you know, I do think he was limited at least somewhat because of that groin. 
but you know he, he's had some issues uh, from an efficiency standpoint uh, and just from a control of the game standpoint when he's been matched up uh, head-to-head against Kawhi Leonard this season. Uh, JaVel McGee and Dwight Howard minus eight in that game. So as you know, Anthony Davis at center, which is what they seem to be wanting to avoid, was again their better answer. Well, and that's what they went to late. It was a fascinating chess match, right? Because with like seven minutes left, the Lakers were big with Dwight and the Clippers were small with Montrezl Harrell as their center. I think it was Paul George who was able to kind of get into a switch situation with Dwight Howard, hit a three-point over the top of him. And so Vogel decided, you know what, we have to close small. So he goes small. And in the last five minutes of that game, it's tied. Both teams are small. And it's sort of like, all right, let's see you know, who's playmakers, whose superstars can rise to the moment and win this game. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, ultimately, like, Davis was not involved enough on offense for my liking. The ball did not get inside enough uh, from the Lakers' standpoint, as I mentioned, uh, to my liking. And then with the Clippers, uh, you know, they forced some turnovers with their defense. I thought their switching defense, uh, you know, came through, you know, really in the clutch uh, multiple times late in that game, forcing turnovers uh, and just, you know, putting them in situations where they could clear the defensive class too. But then offensively, I thought Kawhi was the steadiest presence on the court of all the superstar players. Uh, it wasn't like he scored, you know, 12 straight to ice it. But when they needed points, he was able to get to the free throw line and do it. All right. I'm going to try to get into some issues that have nuance. And that usually doesn't work very well. But I'm going to try a little nuance with Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. You can be great and not be perfect. And I think what we saw in this Lakers-Clippers game, and it probably goes to Giannis in some ways, though he's pretty close to perfect, and goes to Embiid in some. Like, Kawhi Leonard is great and checking all the boxes right now. I thought LeBron James was great and looked old. I thought Anthony Davis looked great and looked passive or scared late. I thought Paul George looked great, but not the guy, right? Like, and so for in case of Paul George, it's fine because he now has Kawhi, where when he had Russell Westbrook, that was a problem because he had to be the guy. And that's just not who he is. Like you said it, he didn't look comfortable late, Ben. Anthony Davis, you said it, he was absent, but I didn't feel like he was asserting himself either. And LeBron, he was brilliant. He's still great, but inside, unable to get up to finish one of the drives, unable to get, like, when you're trying to be at the level we're talking about, these little tiny things are the separators that hold you back. And I'm a little nervous that Giannis might have one too. I'll get to that in a second. But do do, do you follow what I'm saying in this? It's not being critical. These guys are denying how great they are. But to try to be the world champs, the greatness level is outrageous. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the margin for error was so tiny, and I think that's the lesson the Lakers need to take away from Christmas. They had a bunch of mental errors. You know, Anthony Davis, the turnover on the perimeter. Danny Green's two reach and fouls, which you mentioned. Big-time mental errors. You just can't do that in that situation. LeBron James setting up the signature step-back three on the final play of the game, which everyone knows he wants to get to because he does that shot basically every single night. Beverly reads it perfectly and is able to kind of swipe it right on uh, right on cue and have that be the game. LeBron missing a free throw, uh, you know, with less than a minute left. There's a lot of mental mistakes kind of all around. You know, Danny Green actually rushed a three-pointer, uh, you know, during the last five minutes of the game. And then just L.A.'s offense in general struggling to get the ball to Anthony Davis and Anthony Davis not making the best decisions in terms of going downhill, 
and attacking the Clippers, you know, smaller lineups, which is what he should be trying to do to me. So that's a lot of mental mistakes all kind of adding up. Uh, they just don't have the margin for error at that level. If I'm the Lakers, though, I still feel like that game was winnable. LeBron played uh, below his standard, missing his first seven shots. And I think he actually missed his first seven three-pointers as well. Uh, and I, I think that if this raises any questions for L.A., it's, you know, can you get another – uh, you know, backcourt playmaker, ball handler type of guy to relieve some of the burden on LeBron James. That way you don't have to play Rondo uh, in crunch time minutes. That way you can uh, you know, maybe have just a little bit better balance or, or just someone else who can get you into stuff if LeBron doesn't have it going. I think that's the, the major takeaway. That's not a crisis. You know, I don't think you're writing off the Lakers when you're, when you're speaking harshly about their superstars from this one game. Uh, but I do think that they could look at this as a, an opportunity to try to tweak the roster. No, the the crisis is if LeBron's groin's a problem. For sure, and that's what would have me nervous. And I think there's been reports from ESPN.com that people are telling LeBron to chill out, and I'm I'm in that group. You know, I think that the the biggest difference between the Clippers and the Lakers this season so far has been in their approach to the regular season. You know, the Clippers are just sort of jogging this into a marathon. The load management stuff with uh, Kawhi Leonard bringing uh, Paul George back very gradually. Uh, you know, they haven't really had their full lineup healthy, so they're not super concerned about, you know, their early record kind of wins and losses. And if Kawhi happens to turn, uh, you know, flip the switch during a big game, great. If not, you know, oh, well. And I think with the Lakers, they just came out, you know, full sprint. And then as they were running off that winning streak over, you know, a lot of sub 500 teams, it felt so good to be winning again, that they couldn't help themselves, right? It was like just maxing out every single night, you know, sometimes they're on the road coming back from double-digit deficits, just trying to keep the winning streak going. It's human nature, especially when you look at how LeBron's season ended last year and how Anthony Davis's season ended last year, to kind of want a gun for those victories. But I think they might have, you know, potentially overdone it a little bit. I'm not saying they need to rest LeBron for a month, right? But I do think they want to manage this regular season maybe a little bit better than they have. It's really interesting. All right. Uh, the original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for quality sleep. Surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Get $100 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash locked NBA. That's locked NBA at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. If you can't visit Casper, go to lockedonpodcast.com slash offers. How big a statement by Joel Embiid in his 28 minutes plus 15, 31 points, 11 rebounds, three assists. Giannis goes eight of 27 in that ball game. Shot charts definitely show the impact of a big man in the middle. What did Joel Embiid tell the world last night? I think he won Christmas. I don't know how you feel, but I thought he was the, the number one winner of Christmas Day by a pretty good amount. I mean, of course, that Lakers-Clippers game had its own share of winners. Patrick Beverly probably <laughs> maybe deserves a silver medal here. But when you're looking at that head-to-head matchup, Embiid versus Giannis, I think that's ultimately what's going to de- decide the Eastern Conference this year. Whoever wins that matchup, they're probably going to win the series, and they're probably going to advance to the finals, right? I mean, I don't want to skip steps, but that's the most likely outcome. I think these are the two most talented players, uh, the two most imposing players, the two most uh, you know balanced players in terms of being able to be big time pluses on both offense and defense. And so you know this is the the one that you circle. I would say Embiid, uh, you know, capitalized on what was a very off shooting night for Giannis. I mean, he was 0 for 7 from three. He's been shooting the three point ball very well this season. Um, so I think that helped. It got Giannis a little bit flustered. Uh, and maybe he was forcing things at times. But Embiid just played a very disciplined defensive game, contested uh, Giannis's shots consistently, 
uh, you know, was able to play without, uh, you know, getting himself into too much foul trouble. And then he had good help from, from guys like Horford and Simmons. I mean, they are absolutely built to make life as difficult as possible for Giannis. Um, and, you know, we've discussed some of their offensive issues and, and inconsistency and all of that. But when they're locked in and they're really playing hard defensively, they probably have the best personnel of any t- team besides maybe the Clippers uh, when it comes to, you know, trying to limit Giannis. I would caution against overreacting too much of this game, though, for two reasons. First of all, it was Giannis's worst shooting night in more than a year from the field, right? So that's already an outlier. And, of course, Philadelphia contributed to that, but he was just off, you know, period. The second thing was they, they tied a franchise record for three-pointers, and they just basically could not miss. I mean, uh, Moss came off the bench, gave them, you know, an awesome pop uh, from outside. Tobias Harris hits five threes. Um, they were just scorching red hot. And we know that's kind of not the standard for uh, Philadelphia, who's like a bottom 10 uh, team, I think, in terms of you know making three-pointers. So it was a little bit uh, of an outlier game on both sides. Uh, but, you know, even with those asterisks applied, I thought it was really impressive from Joel Embiid. I'm a big believer in, uh, for the long run, the QSQ data, which is the shot quality data um, on every team so that you can kind of equate when a team suddenly has, you know, these absurd shooting nights. And it's interesting, Milwaukee had better shot quality than Philadelphia. Now, <clears throat> Philadelphia shot lights out. Um, and actually, actually, by the end of the night, Milwaukee's effective field goal percentage was about the same, despite the fact that they fit Milwaukee, they went 21 of 44. Um, but it, it did tell me that, like, okay, like there's a little bit of outlier shooting going on with Philadelphia in that ball game. Uh, eight free throw attempts by Milwaukee in the game, and only four for Giannis, and two of four from the line. Like he shot below fifty percent in the last, I think, four or five games in that series against Toronto. Are we at all worried about Giannis's free throw shooting? I'm not worried as long as he's getting to the line and most against most teams, he just lives at the line. So, Hey, if he shoots 50 or 60% from the free throws, but he's getting there 14 times, I don't think it's, you know, that big of a cause for concern. I think the issue though, is that Philadelphia did a great job defending him without letting him get to the free throw line and, and making those shots difficult. I mean, sometimes you don't get any free throws because you're just dunking every single time down the court. Right. And that was not the case here at all. Um, uh, you know, Giannis was supposedly dealing with, you know, maybe some, a back injury or something like that uh, coming into that game. They showed him grimacing, you know, during the pregame uh, videos. I don't know if he was limited in some way that they haven't fully disclosed, but uh, he did not look like himself uh, in this game. And you could see the frustration coming through. I mean, he, he punched his fist, getting himself a technical, uh, you know, after a no call. He got kind of, a, you know, a hand to the face at, at one point that really frustrated him. And then he was just also like just staring into the distance, uh, you know, looking just, you know, very kind of overwhelmed and and disappointed in the second half. I think they just kind of got hit by a a perfect storm from the Sixers who came out great in that first quarter, never slowed down, uh, shot the ball extremely well, and then got, you know, MVP level play from Joel Embiid. He has not done that every single night uh, this season. If he wants to get into the conversation with guys like Giannis and, and Harden and LeBron, you know, from from a standpoint of really being an MVP candidate, he has to play like he did on Christmas every single night. Uh, he told, uh, you know, reporters after the game that people have forgotten about how good he is. I'm not sure that's true. I think everyone really knows and respects what Joel Embiid can do when he's playing at his ceiling. 
The problem is we don't see it every single night and we all want to see it every single night because it's so entertaining. It's so dominant and it's so good for the sport. So, uh, you know, Embiid is kind of challenging his uh, critics maybe to, to show him a little re- respect. I think he should challenge himself to play with that level of effort and intensity every single night. Yeah, no one's forgotten. Everyone thinks he's the most talented player in the league. I've had people tell me who watch him all the time who think that the game's too easy for him. <laughs> he's just bored? The, yeah, I mean, I do kind of wonder with that, both him and Jokic, right? I mean, is, is boredom like the chief issue for both those guys? I don't know. There's a whole conversation. We'll, we'll, we'll look at those other three games and, and have that conversation uh, with Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. Uh, you can get his newsletter. Go to Ben Golliver Twitter. Catch it there. Follow his newsletter. Get it in your inbox every Monday from the Washington Post. It's great. NBA catch-up and all the big stories that are going on uh, as we continue here on the Locked On Podcast Network. The item that you're touching on there, I actually think is a really interesting comment about Jokic and Embiid. Um, There is something to how, like, the least talented guy is the guy who plays the hardest because he has no choice, right? Like, if Patrick Beverly doesn't play that hard, he's going home. There's no question. And I'll tell you what, this is, I, I went on a big rant last week about DeAndre Ayton. Uh, and this comes back to the same idea for me of like, okay, when we're looking at the absolute greats, and you were talking about margin for error on greatness earlier, all those guys we were describing play incredibly hard, right? I mean, night to night, they're just completely locked in. Basketball is, is their sole motivating force. It's the only thing they care about. I see that same value from Giannis and from Luka Doncic. It's one reason why I'm so high on Luka's ceiling is I just feel like this guy he is just obsessed with the game, and as he grows older, that's only going to deepen, and he's just going to do absolutely whatever it takes to turn himself into a champion. Like, if, if you told me he's going to retire without a ring, I would be stunned. Uh, I just think he's going to find a way to get it done uh, before his career is over, right? Uh, we look at some of these other players. You don't want to be questioning uh, their heart or their commitment, but – like with Aiton, you know, like when he comes back after a 25-game drug suspension, it's just like, you know, chucking up mid-range jumpers and not hustling back on defense. And he even showed up late for the game because the bus got stuck in traffic. Like all these little things are just red flags. It's like, come on, man, you're the number one pick. Your investment in the sport should be on that high of a level. And I've been frustrated with Jokic on that fact, too, because he made some comments last year about how he wanted to be the Tim Duncan for Denver. I'll tell you one thing. Tim Duncan never came in and had people questioning his commitment to the sport at any time during his career in San Antonio. He was the standard setter. He was the guy that could take the punishment from the coaches uh, more than anyone. He was uh, the guy who's, you know, holding down their defense for decades and being the, uh, you know, the backline just monster, uh, the, the reliable force uh, for them the whole way through the coach on the floor, all that stuff. Um, that's a big part about being the Tim Duncan for your franchise. It's not just about, you know, re-signing your contracts and, you know, committing and, and not trying to you know, leave somewhere else in free agency. It's about that level of leadership and buy-in and, and really embracing what it means to be a franchise player. I'd like to see it from Jokic because we saw it from Jokic last year. We saw it from him in the playoffs last year. So let's see it again. It's interesting. Eric Spolster at a press conference that I, when the Jazz played the Heat the other night, brought up grit, which is the Angela Duckworth concept. If people haven't read that book, it's pretty good. And he was just talking about the great grit. And I think he was talking about Duncan Robinson and just kind of, hey, he's had to have a level of grit to be able to get here. And he said, and that's a skill. And then he added on the backside, and it's teachable. And it was almost as though, and I don't mean to put words in his mouth, but it was almost as though he didn't actually believe that, right? That 
It, grit's a skill. You have it. I try to teach it if you don't because I need you all to have it, but it might not be teachable, right? You might either have that grit and it's something about your journey, your life story. Kawhi Leonard has it clearly because he had to improve along the way in contrast to some of the guys we've talked about, DeAndre Ayton or others, who just came into the league so brilliantly skilled. And for that matter, Joel Embiid has really not had other than injuries, an arduous journey to greatness, it's come pretty easily to him. I think the same could be said about Ben Simmons. You know, why do I need a jump shot? I'm already an all-star. Yeah, the Simmons thing kills me, man. I understand the people's frustration on the, on the lack of offensive development there. I mean, I was so high on him because you could see the, the natural talent when he's like 17 or 18, and you just project five years ahead because you're like, oh, this is going to just, you know, if he just takes a normal growth curve on any of this stuff, he's just going to be a monster. And instead... Uh, on a lot of categories, unfortunately, he's flatlined. I mean, that's what you're looking for. The absolute best players are going to have both the, the grit or the drive uh, and the natural talent. Um, and I, I think, you know, you, you can never predict it perfectly, right? I do think uh, grit is teachable, but I just think it happens a little bit earlier in life, right? You know, I mean, don't you think your habits are set probably by the time you're in high school in terms of you know, how committed you are to, you know, improving yourself as a player and to rounding things out? You know, you know, what priority level is this sport for you compared to, uh, you know, other aspects of your life? And so I think by the time you're an NBA player, maybe even by the time you're an all-star, uh, it might be too late uh, to, you know, kind of rework your approach. It's interesting. Uh, I, I almost go to the, I don't know if you've seen the new HBO special with Gary Goldman. Um, he's talking about participation trophies and he's like, I'm fine with participation <laughs> trophies because you're going to learn, you're going to get enough losing in your life. You're going to get enough, enough, learn about losing enough from life. Like life's going to do that to you. And so I think that's how you learn grit, right? And the question is whether that, you know, most of these guys that are in the league are so gifted that they, the grit has to have Jimmy Butler's grit came from being homeless and putting a fax message, you know, having to fax from a McDonald's his letter of intent to a junior college. Like you're just going to get a little more grit that way than some other people. But what's interesting is that Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, who came from pretty you know, pristine lives, it seems, from the outside with former NBA players as their parents have that same grit. So there's no obvious route by which you get that. You know, Draymond's is clearly built off the fact that he was doubted every step of the way and can't forget it even when he's not doubted. So it's an it's an interesting concept of what gets the engine running on each of these players. But you you have to have it at a very very special level to me it's a little bit what makes lebron just such an incredible amazing athlete to watch is that he's just somehow has it while he's you know had all this success uh back to last night's action as we wrap this up uh and this is you know all right going to another book stephen covey's seven habits of highly effective people has like the greatest viewpoint thing early where you have to view the world from everyone else's lenses so you know i'm watching denver and houston solely with the lens of a Utah Jazz play-by-play announcer wondering how much better they are than us as we kind of go through this kind of realm where we haven't found our stride. And it was just this, to me, the way I viewed that was, oh, wow, other people have issues also, was how I suddenly felt, even a little bit about the Lakers. I, I thought that, like, that was a night that, you know what, we just maybe, maybe the Clippers are, but we just don't have this dominant team that we've had or the two dominant teams like the Rockets and Warriors anymore. And these teams all have their little issues and they're just going to be an 82-game grind to how they overcome them. Hey, can I ask you a question on the Rockets? Because, I mean, when we're talking about their issues, I mean, from last night, just look at the box score. It's like Westbrook, 
four turnovers, 11 for 32, and 0 and 8 from three, and he's a minus nine, right? It's like, okay, well, we could just circle those issues, and we all, we all know what those look like. We've seen them for years and years. Are you of the belief that if they get Eric Gordon, you know, when they get him back healthy, which I think is, uh, you know, pretty soon, that that's going to just flip a switch for their entire franchise? Because I think their their fan base and, and maybe even their organization really believes that. They think Eric Gordon's one of the most underrated players in the league, that he, he fits perfectly with Harden. Some of the junk defenses that Harden's facing are going to be possible uh, when Eric Gordon is out there kind of spacing the court and maybe relieving some of the pressure from uh, Westbrook to – to you know, do a little too much, which I think he's been doing here over the last uh, couple weeks or so. Do you think it's going to be a game changer for them, or are they still going to be in kind of a similar spot where you feel like maybe they're on this, a similar tier with Utah? It's an interesting question. I, I'm a big Eric Gordon fan, and happy birthday to Eric Gordon, who turned 31 years old yesterday. He's a Christmas baby. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> but I get nervous when you're relying on 31-year-olds with knee problems to be the answer coming back, right? Like, I think that's a For le- sure, and I'll... Like, yeah. that's a legitimate concern. Too. Right. Um, and there are some signs last season of some aging issues with him. Like, you can, when you want to find, like, if guys are aging a little bit, I think you can sometimes look and, and see, like, rim finishing and am- an amount of shots at the rim. He went from a 24% of his shots at the rim to, I think, 19%. I might be exaggerating. It might be a little different than that. I'm doing that off the top of my head. I remember from the playoffs last year. Um so I think there's some signs of him aging, so I'm not sure I'd be totally comfortable with him carry fixing everything, but he's, you know, it's a pretty good addition, right? He's a pretty special player, takes nine threes a game and hits him at a 36% rate, which is league average. So he's got as good a gravity as anyone out there. Yeah, and he really makes Harden's life easier. You know, I'm so conflicted about this Rockets uh, Christmas game because on the one hand, the logical part of my brain says, look, it's one game out of 82. It's a road game against a motivated opponent. Um, you know, ultimately they're going to be cruising towards a playoff spot. They don't have Eric Gordon. Um, you know, Harden was it was facing weird defenses and, and didn't necessarily seem fully engaged like he has at, at a lot of times this season. So there's explanatory factors for sort of what went wrong and, and how that upset takes place, right? But the more emotional part of my brain is like, come on, Houston. I've been trying to defend you guys against critics for the last five years, right? Um, here's an opportunity to go out there, make a statement, blow Golden State out of the water, have Harden get 50, big national TV game. Uh, you know, you've been crying for MVP attention for, for years. You've been asking for more respect, uh, uh, you know, and, and saying how close things were against the Warriors in multiple, you know, playoff series. Just go out there and take care of business. It's not that complicated. You're playing against a bunch of fringe NBA talents just blow them off the court and call it a day, right? You know, send, send a message to all uh, of the people who you think have been treating you unfairly here these last couple of years. And they did not do that. And in fact, they did the exact opposite. They just gave more fodder to all their critics. Uh, and it's almost kind of, uh, you know, hilarious or humorous fashion, the, the way that it happened. So I don't know. That's why I say I'm conflicted. I don't want to overreact and kill them too much because ultimately like Christmas, that game matters the same as, you know, a, a random Tuesday in February. But, boy, that's just not the way you want your showcase environment to go. But I feel the same way on the other game. Like, Monty Morris hits that three with 832 left, and it's now 91-90. Denver has kind of sleptwalked through the ball game. They were they were down, I think, three at the half and four going to the fourth, and you're just not worried about it, right? Like, Denver's at home. They're 13-3 and three at home. They win close games. They have Jokic. It's, 
more, their bench who's been not very good this year for them plus minus because they play five they do some unique things where they play five bench guys and five starters separately and they you know they get the big shot and they're within one and I'm like okay they're all good and then all of a sudden it's just like all of a sudden I'm like wait Pelicans are up seven. Oh, Jokic hits a three. It's down to four. Here we go. And they just never broke through. Like it, 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 I don't know. I left the Denver game kind of feeling the same way of like, wait a sec, what just happened here? I was utterly convinced that I knew exactly as a guy who watches the NBA that I know exactly what's going to happen here. And it's exactly how I felt in that Houston game with almost the exact same scenario is if I go back and look at, it, I think the fourth quarter got down to about four, maybe even Harden takes the lead, I think on a shot in the fourth quarter. And you just know the game is over, right? Like, uh, yeah, James Harden hits a 30 point, a uh, 30 foot step back with eight minutes left. They go up 97, 96. There's no way they're losing that game. Like, that's the weirdest thing to me about both Denver and Houston is they slept, walked through the first 40, and they had to just put it down for eight minutes, and they didn't do it. Yeah, I mean, credit to Brandon Ingram for, you know, stepping up there for New Orleans, but I'm with you, man. Like, it does feel like both those teams, you know, the favorites in those games just kind of forgot what the script was supposed to be late in that game. I have another question for you on Denver. You know, Paul Millsaps in the final year of his contract, he's making like $30 million. I mean, that sounds like a really big number, but I think when you're looking at trading for kind of premier-level players right now, like that's a pretty good lever to get yourself, um, you know, an impact-level guy. I think he went scoreless, if I'm not mistaken, on Christmas. He only takes two shots. Um, That's not, you know, his normal impact level. I think that he's given them a lot of really important minutes here over these last, I I guess it's what, three seasons in Denver. But – is he a lever they should be using in trade talks to try to get themselves, uh, you know, try to swing for the fence a little bit, try to shake things up and, and get a bigger name player? Can they use that contract to, to swing something? What do you think? Well, it's a great place to probably just leave this podcast because I think it's the number one question in the NBA for the next month is what do the Nuggets do? I, I don't think there's a bigger question out there. Maybe it's who the Lakers. Can the Lakers add you know Marcus Morris or can the Clippers put Marcus Morris in instead of Patrick Patterson somehow? Maybe there's something there. But from my standpoint, the biggest question is how does Tim Conley in a market that does not need $30 million expiring contracts because there's not a free agent to go after in the offseason? And how do they use this multitude of pieces that they have in this incredibly awesome array of talent they've built in that roster to find that important next piece to spark them. They're, they have a level of complacency to them, uh, which I am not surprised by. I think bringing your same team back is hard in this league. And I don't, I'm, I think it's the number one story in the NBA probably for the next five, six weeks is what does Denver do? There's a fine line between patience and complacency, right? And I think that they were on the right side of that line last year kind of letting things, uh, you know, cook. They are able to get the 54-win season. The patience is rewarded. They trusted the, the script, trusted the, the growth of the younger players. They win themselves a playoff series, and everything is great. Uh, to me, they're now on the wrong side of that line. I do think they've become complacent, a little bit stale. Um, they're playing an awful lot of guys, which I think, you know, is going to be part of it. And I just think that they have to look ahead to the future and say, they're not a title-contending team this year to me. Uh, they're not on that level, right? If Millsap walks this summer or if they have to you know try to re-sign him again or whatever how does that change going forward right i think they need to shake up i think they need to kind of swing for the fences a little bit here uh, maybe take on some risk by accepting a, a longer term contract in return for you know a, maybe a marquee type player uh, and if i were them i would be protective of guys like gary harris 
uh, in trade talks. So I don't know if that means you have to use Millsap's contract and you throw in a Michael Porter Jr. or some first-round picks down the road or whatever it might be. Uh, but I always see Gary Harris's name in, in these trade conversations. I'm not sure that's the way they should play it. Uh, if I were them, I'd be trying to uh, you know flip Millsap and see how it goes. He is Ben Golliver. Read him in the Washington Post. Get his newsletter by going to his Twitter account, at Ben Golliver, and subscribing to his weekly newsletter. You catch me and I every Thursday here on Locked on NBA. Going ISO with the guys Noah and Adam on Rejecting the Screens, a good one with Coach Nick from Basketball Breakdown. So feel free to go grab that right now. They come out every Tuesday and Thursday. Just tell your smart device to play the most recent episode of podcast Rejecting the Screen. And remember, your favorite NBA team has a daily podcast on the Lockdown Podcast Network. Continue to have a happy holidays. Thanks very much for tuning in today.